1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobeck, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am absolutely thrilled today to welcome Greg Beckett to the program to discuss Truillo Remixed, the Michelle Rolf Trujillo Reader, published in 2021 with Duke University Press. Professor Beckett co-edited this volume with Yaramir Bonilla and Mayanti El Fernando, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today. He is associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Western University, and I'm very pleased to welcome him into the program.
0: thank you for having me.
1: Who was Michel Rolf Touillot? That's a great
0: question. And I think that, you know, one of the things we grappled with in putting the volume together is exactly that, how to represent somebody, you know, especially when they're no longer with us. Um, you know, the easiest answer is he was, as an academic, he was a cultural anthropologist who worked in the U.S., a Haitian-born scholar. Um, but I think he was many more things than that and more, many more hats. And one of the things we tried to do in the book was give a little bit of, of background, biography, and context. Uh, Yari mar does an excellent job of that in her, her preface to the book where she talks about Uh, who he was as a person and how he came into anthropology. And I'll come back to that in our, in our talk today as well. Um, But, you know, in a lot of ways, so he, as an intellectual, he wasn't just an anthropologist. He was an interdisciplinary scholar who engaged with a lot of different fields, uh, most directly history in his book, Silencing the Past, but not exclusively that. He, I think would have self-identified as a, as a Marxist scholar um, and a Marxist anthropologist he had a commitment to anthropology, even though he was uh, a pretty strong critic of it. And we'll come back to that when we talk about some of the pieces as well. And so, but the, but the broader kind of idea that we have behind the volume is that uh, one time, Yarima tells this story in the preface, one time she asked Rolf about himself and, and what he would have done if he wasn't in anthropology. And he said um, something to the effect of, well, I'm really a songwriter. And he has this whole other history beyond the academic where he did write songs and was involved in plays. He was an intellectual in exile in the 60s and 70s, having fled Haiti under the Duvalier dictatorship. So he really has a lot of different kinds of potential biographies. And they all coalesce in sort of making him a complex thinker, of course, as all of our biographies kind of have these different facets to them. And so we wanted the book to to have a lot of avenues into those different personas and different interests that he had. But I think most clearly, uh, for those who aren't familiar with his work and might be interested in the book, he is, I think, one of the foremost scholars of the West and the historical conditions that give rise to and help us understand what we call the West as a project.
1: So what inspired you all to put this reader together?
0: So the three uh, um, editors were all, I, I think we would say, his final generation of graduate students at the University of Chicago, which is where he was teaching when he became ill before he passed away. And so we all came out of the anthropology department at the University of Chicago. Two of us, myself and Yarimar, went to Chicago explicitly to, to work with TRIO uh, because we're Caribbean scholars. Yarimar works in Guadeloupe and and Puerto Rico. I work in Haiti. Myanthi kind of found his work at Chicago and was very inspired by his work. So we were all um, actively working with him uh, when he became ill and and after he was ill. And so part of it was about, you know, a, a kind of standard move that I think students feel to kind of carry forward the work of their mentors and their advisors. But it was definitely more of that. And the project has evolved and grown in different shapes over uh, many years before it became a book. Uh, for a while, um, we didn't know how to put it together or, or what we might put in it and leave out. Um, it was a conference at the University of Chicago inspired and around his work uh, that really led to this version of the book. And so, um, you know, we all were really invested in in his work uh, intellectually shaping us. And we wanted to find a way to not just record it, not just have an archive, which is one Sort of way that a reader collects people's work, but to really think of it as a living body of of intellectual engagement that people can come to and get something from and take into their own projects. And so that was a real inspiration on this version of the book is to think about it as a living legacy, um, not just a a statement of his work from the past, and not just a chronological, uh, archive of his work, but something that shows it maybe, hopefully, in some new light, and maybe even in ways that that he wasn't thinking about um, in terms of the selections we made or the the way we put it together.
1: And you decided to call this book uh, uh, "Remixed Trio Remixed." Uh, could you explain that decision?
0: For sure. So it it came out of this idea of the songwriter, which we began uh, the book begins with with Yarimar. I'm we really thinking about what would hold the book together conceptually what kind of things to include there's a lot on the cutting room floor that didn't make it into the book it was probably twice as long when we first uh, proposed it to the press and of course had to make a lot of cuts um, so thinking about organization and how to put it together we kept coming back to how he you know very playfully but also seriously described himself as a songwriter And we thought well maybe music could be a metaphor for the organization. And then it became more than just a metaphor. And it really became for us a way to think about what the book could do as a reader, which is to show a kind of potential remixing of his own work, but also thinking of it as source material for people to remix themselves in their own work and not just reproduce, um, you know, Trudeau's paradigm or Trudeau's argument about X or Y, but to actively take something from his work and do something new with it. So we wanted the book to have that kind of feel of something that wasn't going to just be um, you know, replayed again and again in the same form, but that each iteration through um, or each reading or each person who comes to the book would make something new with it. And so that was really the idea behind how we settled on organizing it as well. And so keeping with that kind of idea, um, we decided to put um, sort of deep cuts, as it were, or or older versions of pieces that have become famous. So you can see the legacy of his thinking and how it might have shifted or some surprise pieces that people might not have known about in with some kind of classic hits that the bangers that people really do know uh, the most cited pieces. So the, the book kind of contains all those different elements that might also kind of get mixed together as it were.
1: So for our interview, I'd like to maybe focus on three chapters depending on how, Time works, Uh, and I'd like to start where you start, which is with the first chapter, uh, anthropology and the savage slot. Why did you choose this as the first chapter?
0: Yeah, you know, we 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 had a couple different (laughs) versions of the table of contents and thinking through where to start, and we kept coming back to this piece for a couple of reasons. Now, it might be partly because the three of us, as editors, are also anthropologists, and we're coming to trio as an anthropologist first. Um, but it, And this is a piece where he's most clearly engaged with anthropology as a discipline in a pretty critical way. And, and it's a sort of a, a early-ish piece, originally published in, uh, in the early 90s, that ostensibly connects to debates in anthropology from the 80s and into the 90s. But we chose it as a starting point for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's fair to say, I don't quite have the, the data, but anecdotally, I feel like it's probably his most... Widely read single article, um, and I think that it for us as editors we also feel a frustration that sometimes it feels a little misread. And of course, that's when you're heavily invested in someone's scholarship and work, it's easy to feel that way sometimes if people um, don't always see what you see in it. So we wanted to begin with it for a couple of reasons because people will know it, or if they don't know it, it's it's a great piece for people to pull out of the reader to use in classrooms, for example. So it. It really was um, uh, it had to be in the reader. We knew that. We knew it's something that people would would have better access to if it was in the reader. But the real reason it starts it is because of the pitch we make in what we call our overture, our introduction, keeping with the musical theme. We called it an overture, um, which is that we can read this piece in two ways. One, in the on the surface, it really clearly is a critique of the sort of writing culture turn in anthropology, the turn to thinking about genre and representation. Sometimes gloss is sort of a postmodern moment in anthropology. And I can come back to what that meant um, for him and his critique of it in just a moment. But the way we suggest people read the piece that, that sort of lives beyond the moment of its writing and the moment of its production is that it really very clearly lays out the central theme. That's a burning question through all of his work, which is that, we really have to understand what the West is and was historically as a set of social, economic, and political formations and relationships. And at the kind of imaginative or symbolic level as a project that conceives of itself as a a linear progression, a a, a sort of world historical taken for granted project that is just the way the world is the West has been so successful as a project over the past 500 years of making itself seem inevitable and natural. Um, so it sets all the terms of our thinking in anthropology, very specifically in the article, but much more broadly across a lot of his other work. So that's also why we begin the, the that part um, in which that's the first chapter is called The Geography of Imagination uh trio had these two terms that he thinks of together the geography of imagination and the geography of management that are never fully clearly i I think explained in his work but the way we interpret it is the geography of management would be all those things we might call colonialism the kind of colonial structures that spread out in the world uh, or world capitalism the, the things that we would turn to that metaphor of structure to talk about whereas the geography of imagination is all the kinds of symbolic schemas the value systems, the systems of meaning, maybe in an older paradigm, superstructure or ideology, um, all of those things that for I think for Trio, really are the, the, the subject matter of anthropology, um, the way that we make meaning in the world and the way we interpret the world. And so we wanted those first four pieces in that part to really be about how he critically thinks about the concepts and categories that shape our understanding of the world. And we begin with that one because it really sets out for Trio and for the reader of the whole book, an argument about how the West requires a certain idea of difference in order to define itself. And then how anthropology as a discipline was born as the discipline meant to study that difference, the non-European others, the non-Western others. Of course, anthropology has pushed back against that and changed over time. But historically, it emerges as the sort of curator, as it were, of the West's idea of difference around the world.
1: And maybe before we move on, you could come back to this critique of the postmodern moment that you mentioned.
0: Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar um, with anthropology, and I don't assume this is sort of inside baseball of anthropology here, but in the 80s, anthropology went through a kind of auto-critique then in some ways, it feels like it's never quite gotten out of. I like to think of anthropology as a very neurotic social science where other social sciences are just very triumphant about themselves. Like economics is like, well, we're right, even in the face of empirically um, being wrong about a lot of things, whereas anthropology is always worried that it's not getting it right. And it's, it's very self-critical, which is a good thing, I think. And I think it's one of the things that drew Trio to anthropology. Um, But so in in the 1980s, there's this concern about how anthropologists are representing difference and a kind of critique that comes in that really focused a lot on, and this is part of the critique, it focused for Trio too much on narrative genre and writing itself, how to write about others. That is an important critique in anthropology. I think it was a really important moment. Um, but I think what Trio tries to get, and he's not the only one to critique it on this point, tries to get us to see that we can't critique just the forms of representation of difference or otherness without also being attentive to both the historical and the present forms of inequality or difference-making that produce those differences as meaningful differences around the world, or that, in fact, produce similarities around the world, um, which is actually something that that his work shows a lot, that we might think... Um, that places in the Caribbean are going to be very different from Europe, let's say, but of course they might not be. And they might be very entangled over centuries in ways that we miss if we keep a sort of binary idea of, of difference. And especially we think of it as spatially separated where we are some in one place and they are somewhere else. So his critique was really, I think um, uh, a a couple of things. One, he thought that it would make anthropology um, sort of, go down a path of just navel-gazing, just focused on the anthropologists um, and how they write rather than um, and would give up the anthropological concern that he had, which is to really understand how the world came to be and how other people think and act in the midst of those circumstances that they find themselves in. He has a real commitment. Uh, He's not often seen as an ethnographer compared to some other anthropologists, although In his work doesn't have this sort of narratively driven style of ethnography as we might think of it in anthropology. His historical work is much more narratively driven than his anthropological work. But at the same time, he has a real commitment theoretically and politically to thinking of the people he worked with in Dominica or in Haiti or elsewhere as agents who have theories about their lives. And that for him was what anthropology could open up because of its concern to get to the, the micro level of scale, the, the sort of small scale where people are actually doing things and not just assuming we know what they're doing. So he had this real commitment to anthropology and it's, its promise in ethnography, but he thought that this sort of postmodern concern just with writing would miss that point and would sort of re-inscribe anthropology in just sort of policing um, policing the categories of the West in some way, or or perhaps even worse, just becoming irrelevant. If it was just a story about the anthropologists and what they encountered, it wasn't going to be very interesting for him.
1: So the chapter is called, or the paper is called Anthropology in the Savage Slot. What is the Savage Slot? So it's, um, for trio
0: he's trying to think about the way in which, uh, it, it's a real argument for, what we can call the conceptual schema or the symbolic world of the West as it begins to think itself as the West as a project. And Trejo likes to historically move through a couple of phases and think about how the West became the West, beginning roughly in the mid 1400s with the Christian uh, conquest of Southern Europe um, in the ex- expelling Muslims from Spain and from Southern Europe um, converting Jewish populations or otherwise dominating and he calls that the moment of Latin Christendom sort of the, the merging of Europe as a kind of Christian sphere um, and then of course he later calls it the North Atlantic rather than the West um, so that you can, you can include things like North America in in that idea of the West. So, historically, though, he thinks, and as someone who works in the Caribbean as well, I find this very compelling. Um, and you can sort of see how the Caribbean becomes a really crucial point of reference for him. He sees the West as emerging in and through its so called, or its own, it calls it, the discovery of the new world. So, the Columbus moment and the Columbian exchange that follows becomes really crucial historically for what becomes what we now know and what we now narrate as the rise of the West to the rise of global capitalism, the rise of liberal democracy or ideas of freedom, all these things that we would in the West, write as a sort of triumphant history really come out of the five century long engagement with a radical kind of difference. And one of the things that, that I always find interesting to go back to that moment and try to inhabit it, it, we as best we can, um, sort of long, long durée anthropology. What would it have been like in the fifteen nineties, uh, uh, the fourteen nineties, or the fifteen tens to think about all this information you might be getting back in Europe about these continents that nobody had heard of before? And you know, the main reference points for for intellectuals at the time of Columbus and after would have been you know two sort of dominant traditions of interpretation. One would be the theological one through um through the christian um tradition of understanding the bible and and that was a tough one to reconcile because the bible says that you know god made the whole world and that everyone has heard the gospel of of jesus and and here have all these people who don't seem to know who christians are who the west is and they're fighting back or they don't they're not behaving in the way that they're expected to behave whereas christians were very aware of of their others in other parts of the world. They might've been waging crusades against them or fighting with them or trading with them, but these were kind of an unclassifiable group from that Christian point of view. And then there was the sort of scholastic reading, um, the Renaissance rereading of ancient Greek texts, which also said nothing about this part of the world or these people. So it, it becomes in the idea of the West a terra nellis an empty land and there's a whole rigorous attempt to think how do we deal with this territory and the people there legally morally economically and there's debates about uh, can we kill them can we fight them do we have to bring the word of God to them first. And if they reject it, then we can kill them. Or can we just kill them right away? These are actual debates about what is the right way to wage what we now would just call genocide, conquest, and colonization. And so this radical difference really was crucial to a self-conception of the Christian subject and then the, the sort of secular version of it as a Western subject. And the savage slot then becomes the placeholder, the anchor point for that cultural identity. It required this other who was going to be either the the noble savage who was going to be saved by the the humane gestures of the West who would bring Christianity or civilization or all the things that get glossed as the so-called rosy blush of, of colonialism. Or they were the barbarians who had to be either converted enslaved or killed and of course that's the main project of the west in much of the so-called new world as they saw it um, is genocide it's slavery and colonization so the savage slot becomes symbolically the key placeholder that really justifies all of those from the point of view of the west justifies that project of colonization and it's not Idle to, to say that that it required that that thinking. It really was used in debates, in um, political debates, in theological debates to say we can do this. We have the right to do this because these people are this kind of other, and this is um, this is allowable or even uh, the mission that we have to do. You know, at the at the root of this is really a kind of critique of um, the the doctrine of discovery. Um, which the, the, a series of papal bulls allows the, that early post-Columbus colonization to do kind of anything in, in the New World. So the Caribbean and then brought more broadly the sort of uh, territories that, that, that become the North and South America, that become the New World from, from the West point of view, become really crucial for Trio as their critical standpoint to read back the history of the West as something that is absolutely founded, not only on projects of domination materially, on colonialism, extraction of of labor through slavery or other kinds of things, but also really founded on this this crucial symbolic difference of us versus them, which of course resonates historically in different inflections and different valences across the centuries. And I think that we see it sort of being reanimated in lots of ways today as well.
1: And then becomes the object of study for anthropologists.
0: Absolutely. So anthropology has this. And and when you begin with this piece, then it's a really interesting and a serious question to say, well, why would Trio ever want to be an anthropologist if his vision of anthropology is that it is fundamentally bound up with the West's own project as the sort of defender of the savage slot? Um, and how would he want to become that? And, and we kind of grapple with that in the overture and think through why, um, he may have found anthropology such a, a productive discipline to go into. Um, and I can speak a little, I mean, biographically part of that is that he, he kind of gets recruited into anthropology by Sidney Mintz, um, who is, was his, his main mentor and advisor, And for those who don't know, Sidney Mintz is sort of the founding figure of of Caribbeanist anthropology and a key figure in a certain Marxist anthropology that is really important for Trio. Um, And I'll come back to that maybe when we talk about um, peasants and and his his issue around peasants. But um, Mintz really brings him into a certain anthropology that was very different from the anthropology that he's critiquing in this piece. It was much more materialist. not an orthodox Marxist kind of anthropology in that sense, but very empirically situated in material conditions of people's lives, really invested in world systems theory at the time that he was a student uh, from people like Emmanuel Wallerstein and others trying to think about global capitalism as a context that shapes and influences small scale village life in Dominica, a small Island in the Caribbean, for example. So he comes into anthropology into a version of anthropology and he may have just easily passed out because of it, um, but he didn't. He stayed in it. And his final book, Global Transformations, really directly kind of explains some of, of what he thought was important about anthropology. Um, it's an interesting question though, because his trio's family has a lot of intellectuals in it as well, most of them historians. And you can see in his most famous book, Silencing the Past, that he is really a historian as well but he brings history into anthropology and anthropology into history in really interesting ways. But uh, I like to put it to kind of put it succinctly. I think that for trio anthropology holds the same place that political economy had for Marx, which is that Marx thought political economy was absolutely wrong. Adam Smith got all the wrong conclusions from it, but he was the most important person to engage with because that was the key discourse or philosophy or terrain through which to do a kind of imminent critique of capitalism. You had to critique it from its own theory. And so I think anthropology for trio was the only place really that you could get to and do an imminent critique of the West in the way that he wanted to do it. And then I think there's something else about anthropology that he liked as well, um, that it, that it was the least worst discipline in the social sciences. If they're all implicated in the West's project of domination, at least the anthropology Opens the space for a kind of critique. But um, in the overture, we suggest that it is interesting to think about how he never really embraced what we now are, are um, really looking at in the discipline, which is the decolonization of anthropology. We, say, we suggest he might think of it more as trying to unsettle anthropology, because our wager is that for Trio, you can't decolonize anthropology. We can try, but you can't decolonize anthropology unless you can decolonize the conditions around it, the world in which it operates. And that's, again, bringing back the savage slot, that we can critique anthropology's modes of representation and decolonize at that level, but that's only the surface level. You can't, anthropology as a discipline can't do the the work of decolonizing structures of power all around the world. And before that happens, anthropology will, would never be fully decolonized. So it's a it's a tense location for him, full of contradictions, but, but one that I think he found very generative of the kinds of critical intellectual projects he wanted to engage in.
1: That leads beautifully into chapter 10. <laughs> uh, chapter 10, of course, is called uh, Caribbean Peasantries and World Capitalism where he makes the argument that we really need to rethink this term peasant. Why?
0: Yes, absolutely. And just by way of kind of how this, why this chapter is in the book and where it is as well, before we get into it, um, his first full, well, his first book in English (laughs) um, is called Peasants and Capital, which is based on his dissertation work in, in Dominica, a small, quite small island in the Caribbean. And it's, I think people often think, oh, he was an anthropologist who worked in Haiti, but he wasn't. He never did, he wrote a lot about Haiti, but he never really wrote about it as an anthropologist. Um, His anthropological work was really based in Dominica. And that was done in the late 70s, early 80s, that work. And so it is really invested in a lot of questions that come out of Caribbean studies at the time and Marxist anthropology at the time. We wanted to include a lot of that book originally because it's it's the least read book of his it's not even in print anymore and it's easy to sort of dismiss it but because it really is just his dissertation republished but wow it's a good dissertation <laughs> not surprising but it's a very complex book and a really interesting one that if you, Especially if you read it retrospectively, knowing where his work went, you can see the starting point of arguments about fieldwork and methodology. You can see a lot of the conceptual kind of critical moves he makes in later pieces as well. But it's very hard to excerpt that book. We tried a lot of different ways. So we settled on this piece, which was a standalone article he published before he finished his dissertation, but he must have been almost finished. And this piece kind of announces the bigger theoretical stakes that he would put in the introduction of the book, Peasants and Capital. And so it partly is a placeholder for that whole body of work. And also I um, I like this piece because it, it really shows the way he was working with Marxist thought and Marxist anthropology in particular at a certain moment, most directly Marxist, I guess, in a way that would be recognized by my Marxist studies and Marxist scholars beyond. So it's a piece that's very much about the relationship between labor and capital and mediation is a key term for him and that we'll come to that in a moment. But the, the empirical problem and the conceptual problem he begins with in the piece and in that broader work, peasants at capital is this especially, but not only in Marxist studies at the time, peasants are understood to be kind of a problem. Um, they're Their historical residue from an earlier moment, they're understood to be pre-capitalist and the focus is on proletarianization. And there's all these kinds of debates happening in anthropology and in history and in other disciplines, uh, sort of people going through intellectual circles, trying to say, oh, the peasants you see in this part of the world, in, in South Asia or in Latin America or in the Caribbean, aren't really peasants. They're really proletarians who just happen to be farming and they look like peasants. You know, uh, Mintz was really invested in that question, too, is is the peasantry really a rural proletariat? Uh, Because a lot of of agricultural production in ostensibly peasant-like villages around the world might look quasi-industrial, certainly in the Caribbean, where you might have um, rural cultivators, whether we call them peasants or not, working in sugarcane, which is an intensely industrial form of agriculture, Um, very sort of factory-like in its commitment to organizing production around time, and a central mill, and for export. So the... The one problem is just this. So do we just ignore all the peasants around the world or do we think they're just residues who we don't pay attention to or we really interpret them as as secretly disguised proletariats? That could be interesting or not as a problem. But from the point of view of the Caribbean, it's a non-starter because the peasantry in the Caribbean emerges historically long after capitalism. There's just no way to possibly think of them as pre-capitalist. So it really... Blows open the sort of assumed linearity behind a, a sort of more orthodox kind of reading of, of Marx that has modes of production historically shifting from something like um, you know pre-capitalist modes of production to capitalist modes of production, and unless we're just going to write off the whole Caribbean as sort of irrelevant to the story of of world capitalism, which he refuses to do, of course, we have to rethink our concepts. So he's trying to rethink the concept of peasant, but he's also trying to rethink the concept of capital and the relationship between the two of them. So one is to think, well, what could we really use conceptually to think about the people we're going to call peasants? We, we can't use is what people have appealed to before. And this is where there's a critique of anthropology included in this too. We can't just assume peasants are some sort of embodied tradition, pre-capitalist, frozen in time, but maybe still somehow surrounded by capitalist relationships around them now, like they, they, they're they doing the thing they've been doing for centuries, but they suddenly find themselves adjacent to a, a steel mill town or something like that. And how do they negotiate with it? Instead, he wants to say, well, if how can we redefine peasants not in terms of tradition or some sort of static culture, um, but rather as a way of thinking about the labor process? And that I think is really crucial for the Caribbean because it really opens up a more nuanced understanding of relations of land, land as uh, a means of production and a force of production or instrument of production, land ownership as a crucial stakes for peasants. The real key thing that I don't think he he says in this piece, I don't even think he says it in Peasants and Capital, but he says it when he talks about the Haitian peasantry, which I would argue is the the broader political stakes behind this chapter, even though Haiti doesn't really appear in it. I think that when he writes about peasants in Dominica, he has in mind a big political question about the peasantry in Haiti. And um, when he talks about the peasantry in Haiti, he's very, very clear to show that becoming peasant was a choice people made historically as a way to get away from something else in the history of Haiti. And that has to do with the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, the end of French colonialism in what had at that time been the most profitable overseas colony for all of Europe, producing most of the sugar and coffee consumed in Europe at the time in the 1760s to the 1790s. The Haitian Revolution ends all of that. It had been founded on slave labor. After independence in Haiti, there's an attempt to keep a kind of nationalized plantation production to have a kind of commodity-based economy. And the former slaves who had freed themselves through the revolution just were not going to have it. They left the plantations, they squatted on land, they had a real commitment to owning land so that they could control their own labor process. And that for him is the heart of what peasants are, are really trying to do is a choice to have some, however small, control over their lives. Now, of course, it is very small because peasants everywhere are folded into very exploitative relations of extraction through all kinds of ways that capitalism comes into their lives. Some very directly, they might make subsistence food as well as a commodity to sell on the market. That's a fairly direct one where we can say, and I think before Trio, people would say, well, they're peasants on Monday when they farm their own plantains and they're proletariats on Tuesday when they farm bananas to sell to to the ship at the pier. Um, and so, of course, maybe we want a better answer than that. Like, how can they be both? And I think that that for him was a central kind of conceptual question lying behind this piece. And he turns to this idea of, of mediation to think through it. But he's really trying to think about maybe different terms he would use later in his work as to think about scales or what connects uh, a peasant family on a plot of land to a village to a port town to the metropole, to a global market? How can we think through all those different scales from the micro sociological to the macro world scale at the most abstract? I think that it is really about how do we connect the concrete to the abstract? Um,
1: And in this this, uh, article as well, he starts using the word mediation in relation to ethnography. Could you maybe mm -hmm. talk about that as well?
0: Yes, and it's something that I think really only comes out in that language in this article on the peasants and capital book. and he doesn't drift away in his work or his thinking, but he shifts the language a bit and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. but here he's really grappling with pretty explicitly Marxist language and theory at the time. and he wants to, and this is why I think he likes anthropology. He wants to say, okay, well, I'm a Marxist thinker and I really want to understand global capital, but I'm not going to start with the abstract we have to start with the empirical. And as soon as, but but a lot of theory starts with the abstract the ideas of peasant and capital or labor and capital. And when you bring those down to the local level, it's an imperfect match often. And then the, so part of the piece is a critique of that, trying to um, square the circle and fit things into the categories rather than to have the categories derived from the empirical. And so that's his commitment as an anthropologist to say, well, we begin with the empirical and work our way up to the abstract, so that our concepts and categories are um, messier at first, but they go through that work of um, comparative analysis through a bunch of different empirical locations. So we get more robust categories to think with that can include, or that don't sort of leave out whole places like the Caribbean, right? Um, And so he turns to mediation as a way to think that, but he's trying to think about the ways in which Um, The abstract and the concrete meet in, in ways we can make them empirically visible to us, even if they don't immediately seem empirically visible to us. So how do we theoretically find in the empirical what we're trying to study conceptually? And so if we want to find, say, capital present in peasant life, we have to look for those kind of forms of mediation and agents of mediation, people, objects, social relationships that mediate between the empirical and the non-empirical, the abstract, the structures that lie behind things, or the local and the global, or the micro and the macro. One example I really like that he just, it's it's a piece, this article is a piece that's very indicative of his writing style at this moment, where it's this huge theoretical argument using all this different literature. It's super smart, feels a little dense. And then the last two pages just really quickly reference a lot of empirical stuff that he doesn't really narrate as a story that you're like, wow, I really want to know more about that. And there is more about that in the Peasant's Capital book. And that's kind of why I, I say he's not really an ethnographer in terms of his style of writing, because a lot of other anthropologists would have begun with that and got to the theory later. Uh, but he's trying to make an intervention theoretically and conceptually. But at the very end of the chapter, there's this really couple of brief paragraphs where he talks about um, the, the piece that stands out for me is, uh, you know, in Dominica, um, peasants are growing their own food, but they're also all growing bananas. Dominica is a very small island, but it's one of the most important exporters of bananas to Europe. And in fact, is involved in quite complicated trade relationships with the European um, the European market, whether it's going to be protected or not. There's a, a lot of different former co- colonies, former co- colonizers who want to protect their banana production places in the Caribbean or Latin American have their bananas come in and not someone else's. So Dominica fits into this pretty complicated story at the level of global capitalism. Uh, but at the level of the village, you have people growing plantains to eat and bananas to sell. And one of the interesting things is that one of the ways that happens is through what he calls in, in the book version of this peasants and capital, a disguised sale of labor power, trying to think about the ways in which, um, peasants are producing commodities for sale and directly related to forms of capital, but other ways that it happens in a more complicated mediated way is that sometimes peasants are able to get this job of the sorter at the, at the pier or the port. Um, And here they're now kind of stuck between, do I help my family who's growing bananas, make sure their bananas get bought and on that boat. So they make money. But I have my boss telling me only the best bananas make it into the box and onto the boat. And those might not be your cousin's bananas because maybe they're bruised too much from the bumpy road here. And so the the peasant farmers now as banana sorter has to mediate quite directly between the interests of their family, their social relationships, peasants as growers and peasants as uh, those involved in a sort of a particular labor process, and the interests of a giant shipping company that wants the best bananas to go um, back to Europe. And then their job shifts and they don't have it permanently. It's sort of a rotating position. So it's a very complicated social position to have. And I think that um, he he just mentions it it for a few sentences, but um, it's the kind of thing he's thinking about the way that people might be actively actively, and understand themselves to be actively mediating between these two abstract things: the interests of labor, the interests of the peasantry as they know them, and the interests of capital as it's represented by a shipping company or a, a giant corporation, a transnational corporation.
1: And so now I think we get to turn to my my personal favorite chapter, which is "adieu culture." Uh, I also have my own personal axe to grind with the with the word culture, so. Uh, Tuyo argues that we should not be using the word culture, especially cultural anthropologists should not be using the word culture. Can you talk about why?
0: Yeah. So, and this piece comes from uh, his later work. His last it appears in his last book, um, Global Transformations. Um, it's a really interesting piece, and it and it harkens back, of course, to the anthropology and the savage slot and his sort of critique of anthropology. But here, it's a it's a much harder critique for anthropologists to reconcile with because and it's the piece that would most make readers say well why are you an anthropologist then um i think that his family would have expected him to go on to be a historian i think when he was an intellectual in exile in the 60s and 70s in new york it might have been made more sense for him to go into political science or someplace um or even philosophy as a marxist thinker he was involved in all kinds of radical art projects and, but he went into anthropology and, and again, some of that might've been mints really bringing him in, but I think there's more to that. And I think this piece comes closest to him saying why anthropology still matters. But of course, in a classic trio fashion, he says it by saying why it doesn't matter or why it's bad, all the things that are bad about it. So that at the very end, he's like, yeah, but it's also worth keeping. Maybe, <laughs> you know, it's what are you going to do? Um, it, it's bad is let me show you how bad it is, but also let me show you why you might want to not throw all of it out. And so the piece is a, is a real direct engagement with um, American culture anthropology. and And that's really his background and training. Um, you know, before I went to work with him at the University of Chicago, I, I was trained in, in Canada where we get a mix of both the American cultural tradition and the British social anthropology tradition, which is a little different. And no one's really suggesting you throw out the word society uh, in the social anthropology part, um, because I think it it makes a little bit more sense uh, um, why it's there in the title, you know, it's about social relationships. And, but what is culture and what was the project of anthropology as something invested in, in culture? And so this goes back to the argument in the savage slot that that maybe culture was um, in part a way to try to get out of the savage slot, but maybe it also re-inscribed it in the discipline. And I think that he's thinking of it as having this kind of tension but the main reason I think he's like, well, we have to get rid of the word really is the moment that he's writing this is that, that it's we've lost control of the word. In an earlier moment, anthropology was defined, certainly American anthropology was defined as the discipline that studies culture. By the time that he's writing this piece, uh, it's become a kind of commonplace joke among a lot of anthropologists that you know you ask 100 anthropologists to define culture and you get 101 definitions. There isn't really one. It got so slippery, it became everything and nothing at once. Uh, It lost its specificity. And so that itself means we maybe want to rethink it. But beyond that, it escaped the discipline. Uh, And the word is widely used in all kinds of ways, very different from how it's used in anthropology. And um, in, in, in a specifically American context as well, it is bound up with race in a complicated way. So, Triar argues that we should probably just abandon the word rather than sort of fighting for it and defending our territory because then anthropology becomes sort of on the defensive and, and very narrow, or it might actually mean we end up defending a sort of retrograde old definition that we don't want, that it could just become conservative or reactionary. And I actually think that that's happening in certain strains of anthropology that are being. Um, certainly some some older anthropologists who are, are are not going gently into the night, let's say, and um, and want to defend an old version of anthropology as the the protector of the savage slot, you know or as the protector of tradition. And, um, and so I think I, I agree with him. I'm fine getting rid of the word, but he argues that there's something at, that he calls the conceptual kernel that's important to keep. And the question is what was at stake in the turn to culture at all? And so he goes back to Franz Boas, a sort of key founding figure of American culture anthropology to think about what was at stake in his turn to culture? What was it trying to explain? And what was it trying to argue against? So for him, the key is that Boas and the the Boasian anthropologists at the start of the 20th century were really concerned to displace race as an explanation of social difference and to give culture instead as a new language to understand it. And the conceptual kernel to keep there is that culture is always socially inherited. It's not biologically passed on, but it's socially passed on. So it's a real commitment to get away from the kinds of things that lie behind racial thought, or racial thinking, um, which is to say that there's inherited traits uh, biologically genetically inherited and passed on and that those can be understood as giving rise to all the kinds of differences we see around the world. He rejects that, Boaz rejected that. That's a key move in anthropology is to reject that as an explanation and to look for something else and to look for it at the terrain of the social and the cultural and to understand whatever else we mean by culture, to understand it as requiring an explanation of its own not an explanation rooted in something else. So not cultures explained secretly by smuggling nature back in, in the form of race or now genetics. I think the sort of evolutionary psychology kind of move to say that, oh, well, you know, if lobsters think this way, then of course, humans must think this way because of some weird connection I'm going to draw between the anatomy of their brain structures or something, you know, explanations to just ignore everything in between the two start, the starting point and end point of, of what's said. So culture becomes a question more than an answer for him and a commitment to really explaining social life at, on its own terms. Um, social life and cultural life for humans are a kind of, to use a sort of Durkheimian language, their social facts are sui generis. They require their own explanation. They can't be explained by something external to them. So that's his kind of move that that's, that was what was important to keep from the early project but there's another kind of critique of the Boasian project that I think is is in the piece as well that's really important, which is that however good it was at getting us to try to see we have to displace racial explanations and and substitute cultural ones for them, the Boasians, as Trio sees it, never really rose to the occasion of understanding power. And, uh, you know, it's easy to critique them retrospectively. There's all kinds of reasons why they might not have seen it. Um. And what he means by that is that even if they tried to destabilize race as an explanation, they never really reconciled with the fact of racism, with the way that race had come to structure social life in America and other places as well. So that it isn't, you could say, well, race is wrong as an explanation for this, but, it's, but racism is an institutionalized fact in all kinds of structures. And the way to explain that is through understanding power. And so I think that that is the sort of secret third term in this piece is to say that maybe anthropology really studies power, or maybe anthropologists really study the the sort of structural conditions that shape that social and cultural transmission in particular moments or particular places, The the limits of, of culture, the limits of social relationships and the strictures that are placed on them by, by wider systems of power. And then of course, the kind of, unmarked unassumed unquestioned cultural frameworks that justify those modes of power in the first place um, the kinds of unthinkable's that he talks about when he talks about the the Haitian revolution being unthinkable in the west even as it was happening it's not that people didn't talk about it they knew it was happening napoleon sent 40,000 soldiers to try to stop it from happening he clearly knew it was happening but it was unthinkable that that slaves could win their freedom through revolutionary action that that they weren't political subjects it's not it can't be happening even as it's happening it can't be happening you know that's not right that kind of unquestioned assumption behind a structure of power the, the geography of imagination and the geography of management as he has it in some terms and so um, so thinking about moving away from culture because sometimes it is part of the geography of imagination of the West um, and getting instead to questions of alterity, uh, difference, which is, of course, what culture is about as well, but getting in, maybe trying to get at them in some different ways conceptually than through the idea of cultural tradition as anthropology had sort of developed it from Boaz and on. And I think that the piece ends with something pretty remarkable, which is sort of this this last, again, this classic move, the last two paragraphs shift your interpretation of the piece altogether. And he's like, well, you know, anthropology is pretty bad. Maybe there's some ways we can change it. And he offers a few suggestions. A, a, key, a crucial one for him is to reevaluate what he calls in the piece the, the, the native voice to kind of think about the epistemological status of the people that we work with. So they're not just data for our analysis, but, but theorists of their own lives. And, and how do they theorize their own lives? But he ends by thinking about anthropology as sort of um, a moral duty. Um, to understand that the world is produced historically through human activity. Um, and because of that fact, that also means the world can be changed. It can be otherwise. It could have been otherwise before it became the way it is through action, not just inherited um, either biologically at the level of sort of individuals or um, through that linear assumption of of inevitability of the, the history of the West. It wasn't inevitable. It was made, and the world can be made in a different way. And so anthropology holds the promise of understanding historical specificity in the way people make their worlds, even if it's not under conditions of their choosing, becomes for him a political project outside of anthropology to say, well, it's up to us to decide what world we want to live in. Um, And so let's make a better one.
1: This book is spectacular. You all did such a wonderful job of putting such interesting pieces together and creating such a... I mean, of course, Tuyo's work is timeless and so wonderful. But really, everything in this book is so perfectly placed it really transformed how I was reading a lot of these articles just by putting them together in this way.
0: I, I really appreciate that. You know, we, we wanted to have these kind of points of convergence or divergence and, and thinking about that, that piece about the peasantry we were talking about earlier, which is definitely a deep cut. It's not a, a well-cited uh, or read piece. It's older. We follow that with a much more widely read piece on the anthropology of the state, where I think he really is thinking about questions of mediation and the macro and the micro, and how do you make empirically available the abstract, but in a much different kind of language. And so it's a nice for me, it's a nice juxtaposition to move from when, the one to the other, um, it, that even when I go back to the book, I'm sort of surprised even um, by some of the consistency and the resonance of uh, the things he was grappling with in very different genres of writing and very different moments of production.
1: I have one final question, which is a tradition on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now?
0: Thanks. It's, uh, it's a lovely question, and, and uh, I won't speak for my co-editors who, who couldn't be here, but I'm working on a, a couple of things. I, you know, I work in, in Haiti, and um, uh, the piece I'm most directly working on right now, and that is heavily indebted to, uh, to Ralph's thinking, is a, a piece that I'm playing around with calling The Counter-Revolution or what the fuck does the world want with Haiti? And it's really coming out of um, this little snippet from CLR James's fabulous book, The Black Jacobins*, the first English language book to really uh, grapple with the Haitian revolution and, and write about that story. And in that piece, <clears throat> excuse me, James has this short, um, very pithy um, section where he said that, Uh, He talks about the arrival in 1802 of this large military expedition that Napoleon sends his brother-in-law, General Charles Leclerc, in 1802 to end the slave revolution in Haiti. He's like, enough is enough. We're going to end it. Leclerc has these secret orders from Napoleon to arrest Toussaint Loubouture, who's then leading the the sort of revolutionary army in Haiti, um, and kill everybody else and reinstate slavery. This is the mission that Leclerc gets sent to do. He fails miserably. The Haitian, at the time, they, they, they begin to call themselves the indigenous army. They defeat Napoleon's army. The most uh, um, uh, successful military army in the world at that time is defeated by former slaves in the place that calls itself Haiti after this. And they give birth to or, uh, Haiti just about a year and a half after Leclerc arrives. He, Leclerc dies there. Most of the other expedition dies there. And in James, when he talks about this pivot, it's sort of the move into the end phase of what we now know as the Haitian Revolution. James writes, what happens after Leclerc arrives is something every schoolboy should know, but doesn't. Uh, it's paraphrasing, but it has something like that in it. And, you know, in one way, he means the success of of the Haitian Revolution and the, and the birth of Haiti. And clearly that's one of the things he means. We should all know that. We don't know that story. Trio very famously tells us why we don't know that story in Silencing the Past and how the Haitian Revolution has been um, dismissed from world history, from the history of the West. But I think my wager in the piece is that that James also means everyone should know what happened before the revolution ended, why Leclerc was there, what Napoleon's project was, which is it coming out of the French revolution as we see it sort of making and giving birth to liberal democracy, republicanism, ideas of freedom, was a mission to destroy the revolution in Haiti. And it's a counter-revolution connected to the French counter-revolution in the earlier moments of the French um, Revolution's story in the 1790s. It's a reactionary conservative one. It's a defense of, I would argue, white supremacy and inherited privilege. It's a defense of whiteness and a target against Black liberation. It's really key to what Trio calls the unthinkability of the revolution, which is that that nobody wanted it to end the way it was clearly about to end. Haiti can't become free. If it becomes free, it has to be glossed as a failure. Um, We have to understand it as uh, after the Haitian revolution is successful, Haiti's constantly narrated as a black republic, as if republics are assumed white. Um, And so Haiti's often called the first black republic or the first black state. Um, And so it's over inscribed or overdetermined by this racist language from outsiders. And so partly the piece is just trying to reopen a moment of the Haitian revolution to understand the counter-revolutionary violence that really tried to destroy it. But I really try to pivot that up to the present or close to the present. And in the piece I'm talking about at the end, uh, what seems like a very small debate, um, the renaming of a, a, a part of Rogers Avenue in Brooklyn, as um, Jean-Jacques Dessalines Boulevard in 2018. Jean-Jacques Dessalines was the person who took over control of the revolutionary forces after Toussaint Louverture was arrested by Leclerc, and he's the one who presides over the defeat of the French, becomes the first leader, uh, names Haiti, Haiti, declares independence, and very famously or infamously decides that the remaining white planters who were still French and wanted France to come back and save them have to be killed. So after independence, there's about 2000 white colonists who are killed. Um, And this is used by right-wing, I would call them counter-revolutionary folks. Then in 1804, repeatedly over the past 200 years. and, And now to dismiss the Haitian revolution as something that descended into barbarism and tyranny that was, Um, And and very oddly, in terms of the intellectual gymnastics you have to do to justify this, historians will even say, the French didn't go so far. The French uh, um, wanted to exterminate everyone, but weren't successful, so they never engaged in genocide, because they were defeated. Whereas this was genocide. And so it becomes a touchpoint in the sort of white supremacist thinking about um, so-called white genocide. Um, and it becomes a touch point for thinking about why Haiti has to be narrated as a failure because of the excessive violence, um, because of who was killed. Never mind the, the decades or centuries of violence that had killed millions of people as slaves on the plantation, or the idea that Napoleon had sent Leclerc to do exactly that, to exterminate everyone that was written down as the order. Right? And so, in this little debate, um, Rogers Avenue was renamed successfully Jean Jean Dessalines Boulevard. Um, and it runs through a, a part of Brooklyn called Little Haiti. But there was a reaction and a lot of debate in New York um, that I thought was interesting because, of course, people said, how can we name this street after a, a monster, a tyrant, somebody who engaged in racial violence? Um, and then there's a really interesting moment where some of the people who ended up, some self-described Republican counselors who who decided to vote for the renaming said that they did it as a sort of rearguard way of protecting Columbus. So that if they get to name their street Dessaline, they can't take Columbus away from us. And I thought that was a fascinating moment that really brings back so many... Of course it goes back to Columbus. It always goes back to Columbus. To To defend Columbus is to defend the project of the West as Trio has narrated it for us, as a project that is always about the West's ability to conquer and claim its own territory and justify its own violence as reasonable or proportional, um, as legitimate, as the making of a whole new world. So it's it's a short piece that can't quite do all of that, but I hope will be kind of provocative as a piece to get us to think about not only the silencing of the, of the revolution, but the important resonance and afterlives of the counter-revolution as uh, a, a way that Haiti is always used to kind of whether whether directly or indirectly to justify the kind of continuity of an appeal to the ancient regime, to an appeal to white supremacy or to an inherited um, inherited privilege, a kind of racial ideology in particular.
1: The book is Truelio remixed, published in twenty twenty one with Duke University Press. Professor Greg Beckett, thank you so much for joining me today.